Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Christina Lulich. And here are this week's feature stories. Every month, the What's What podcast brings you Fordham Conversations. In this month's installment, WFUV's Isabel Danzis sits down with Fordham professor John Fortunato to discuss his new book, Miracle of Effort, Talia's Autism Journey, and the inspiring journey of a girl named Talia. The book offers readers a sense of what children with autism and their families go through. What can people expect to read about or expect to see in um, A Miracle of Effort? Uh, Miracle of Effort, Talia's Autism Journey, is a story of Talia's journey with autism. She was diagnosed at the age of two, and this book provides detail and walks you through what she experienced from early intervention therapy through her her schooling, uh, the emotional challenges she faced, uh, all the way to this being an incredibly inspirational story of her graduating college uh, her, uh, her, she grew up in New Jersey, her moving to Virginia by herself uh, to become an elementary school teacher. Okay, and what is kind of the inspiration behind this book? Sure, so what inspired me uh, was to provide hope to families who are dealing with this situation. So it's, it's very much a family story. Uh, it's not a science book, it's not a textbook. It's a, it's a story of how a family all the challenges they had, the emotions they dealt with. It speaks about their uh, Talia's parents uh, throughout throughout the book and some of the things that they were dealing with. And I think you already touched on this a little bit, but why is telling a story like Talia's important? Our whole thought was to provide hope to one family. If we provide hope to one family, we would we felt all of this time and effort was going to be was going to be worth it. So we really we really just tried to provide the details of, of what she was experiencing in school, for example. What makes Talia's story stand out and kind of worth telling in this way um, for maybe others with autism? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a success story, and we wanted to provide inspiration in that idea of saying, hey, the good outcomes are, are possible. This isn't, a, this isn't a how-to book in just, just do what Talia did, and you know, you're going to have a wonderful outcome. But, you, you know, through, through her journey, maybe it provides families with a, a set of questions to think about, uh, a set of things to just say, all right, these challenges are the ones that we're going to have to face, and maybe they can better prepare for them a little bit, whether that's education-wise, whether that's emotional, whether that's, you, you know, what support uh, are we going to need to provide. So it's sort of those, those dimensions, I think, I think people might learn a little bit from. But what about people who maybe don't have someone in their family or know someone with autism? What do you hope that they take away from reading this book? I think there are a few things the general public should want to know. The importance of awareness of symptoms, for example. Uh, the importance of early intervention. People in, this, in, in the community who, who study and treat autism would say, you know, that was a, that was a huge variable for Talia. By the time she turned three years old, she was getting daily therapy for five, six hours a day. This book comes down to being a story of hope and hard work. And then I guess kind of one of my last questions is, what was the process for you like writing the book? How did you kind of manage having to talk to Talia and her family and then also 
having to write this book and, you know, be an author in the same way. It was quite an honor to tell this story, but it was also a challenge in the sense of, yeah, I felt maybe a little more pressure in, in who I was writing about. And, and you know, I, you want to get it, you, you want to get it right because of the, the weightiness of the topic. You really want to, you know, provide people, the readers with the best information that you can and tell her story in a way that it does inspire and it does offer hope. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking to John Fortunato about his new book, Miracle of Effort, Talia's Autism Journey. Fashion shows typically consist of models that are a size 2 or smaller. And despite some change, fashion weeks across the globe have yet to become body-inclusive on a larger scale. WFUV's Savannah Mitchell reports on how those in the industry are calling for a change. The world's major fashion capitals are New York, London, Milan, and Paris. And each year in those cities, designers promote their new collections to the public through runway shows. These are put on to showcase new collections to potential buyers, which consists of people ranging from celebrities to the everyday consumer. But fashion shows often lack body diversity and promote unrealistic beauty standards by only showing clothing on extremely thin models. Influencer and model Kitty Lever believes that what is currently displayed on runways sends the message that fashion is not for everyone. There's a lot of young people in the world, and I mean, of all ages, but young people especially that are going to see people walking in these specific designs and based on their size will automatically feel like, oh, this industry is definitely not for me. A movement called Tracking the Curve, run by activist Felicity Hayward, tracks the number of curve models in each fashion week. She reports that out of 13,000 models who walked in all four fashion weeks across the season, only 228 were considered curve or plus size. And for international model Grace Bruning, these numbers reflect the fact that some designers don't actually want to make a change. Now it more feels like people aren't using curve models because they want to. They're doing it to hit a diversity quota or check it off the list and say, we did it. That's how it feels now. Designer Kimberly Gordon says she knows why most designers haven't made the switch to be more inclusive. Why are you prioritizing a small body? Why? And when you ask that question, there's really no way around the answer, which is phobic. Bruning says that there are plenty of diverse models from different modeling agencies to choose from, but designers have to carry their clothing size for them to be placed in the show. When I go to these castings, there's every shape and size of curve model there so then it becomes okay well who do you blame but at the end of the day it comes down to the fact of like the designer has the clothes in the size that they have the clothes and they can choose to remake it in a bigger size if they want to and they can choose to keep it on a smaller size if they want to but it isn't just about the design process lever says that casting directors who often work directly with designers to hire models for runway shows often choose models that fit the industry's narrow standard of beauty. Casting directors are making decisions based on what they think will be perceived well and are afraid to go against the grain, even if it's what like the public is begging for. The high fashion industry values exclusivity as a way to gain respect and admiration from the public. And Gordon says this is applied to bodies as well. I think there's something to be said about exclusivity, like people want into things they can't have. So like clothes they can't afford, $10,000 coats, $5,000 shoes. Um, And I think they apply that same mentality to bodies. So if that body requires an 
excessive amount of starvation or maybe it requires you to be at the age of 14 to have it, you know, this makes it inaccessible and that makes it look more expensive to them. Gordon says high fashion brands that have been around the longest have the most influence, the largest celebrity clientele and media coverage for runway shows. And that's because they have all the money. They get millions of dollars for runway shows. So they put on pretty spectacular shows and they have um, access to couture and the best ateliers in the business, right? So you're getting some of the best and biggest, coolest shows from these big people and they're also going to always be covered right so like the media is always going to go to those shows that's what you're going to see in the news again and again because all the celebrities are going to go there gordon says these brands need to lead the path forward for inclusivity because it would cause a ripple effect within the industry we really need those big brands on board at fashion week and on the runway because they have a lot of power in the way the industry runs. So if someone like Anna Wintour at Vogue, she makes that choice that it needs to be more inclusive and she, you know, requests that of designers or if the big designers of like Chanel or Dior decide to make these huge decisions to be inclusive, that will create demand within modeling agencies and these models will be scouted more. There'll be more opportunity everywhere across the board. Ultimately, it comes down to designers creating clothing with all bodies in mind and casting directors being intentional about who they choose. For WFUV News, I'm Savannah Mitchell. That was WFUV's Savannah Mitchell reporting on the growing calls for body inclusivity in the fashion industry. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What Daily Podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Christina Lulich. And that's What's What.